Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. It's the most wonderful time of the year. No, Borak, that's not the time of the year I'm talking about. I know the holidays are over. No, it's spoiler season. Gosh, I feel like Princess Anna from Frozen on Coronation Day. Why, yes, thank you, Borak. I take that as a compliment. In fact, here in the Unlucky Lounge, I truly believe that anyone can be a princess. What do you say, buddy? You and me? How about a little princess bro time? to all of you planeswalkers, magic players, and spellcasters from all different parts of the multiverse. It is wonderful to see that you have traveled here to join us for another episode of Draft and Draft. My name is Corey, your limited lore master and denizen of the Unlucky Lounge, and joining me, as always, is the best in the business, more than a 2-2 two, two for 2, and my fellow princess bro. He is my very own bartender, and his name is Borak. Borak, how you feeling, my princess buddy? Listen, Borak, you can deny it all you want, but I think that there is a hidden princess inside of all of us. But folks, today we're not talking about beloved princesses. No, she was in Eldraine. Instead, we are going to be talking about where we're traveling next in the multiverse as magic is about to drop its newest set, a little ditty known as Theros Beyond Death. Yes, folks, we are returning back to the plane of gods, myths, titans, and a whole lot of enchantment fun. And today, we're going to top my top hottest takes that I see developing out of the newest Theros set using not only our spoilers, but evidence from days gone by. But before we get to that, we have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of first. As always, Draft and Draft is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts or at Believe.com for great content around sports, lifestyle, entertainment, and of course, Magic the Gathering. You can also find this podcast on those social media networks. At Twitter, find us at Draft and Draft Corey. You can also find us on the Patreon, Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. But most importantly, just tune in. Every week, we're going to come out with new episodes, new content for you to travel in and enjoy the world of Limited from a fun perspective first. And along the way, if you want to subscribe, give us a rating wherever you find us. We certainly would appreciate it. It helps us keep the lights on here in Monas Crew Manor. All right, that's enough of that. Housekeeping is complete. The Sorcerer's Broom is put firmly away in the closet. Now, to the topic at hand here today. 
As you might guess from my statement earlier this podcast, this is the best time of the entire magic year. It's spoiler season. It's when new cards come out left and right from all over different parts of the multiverse, from different parts of the interwebs, from different podcasts, different websites. It is nothing short of exciting. You turn on your phone, you look at Mythic Spoiler, or you look at the main page, Twitter pops up random spoilers all the time too, and you think, oh my gosh, that card looks so cool. No, wait, that card's so cool. Oh, I can't wait to draft that card. That card's going to be worth like 20 bucks. It is that prime time where we all get to mize just a little bit. And when it comes to things like podcasts and web pages, we all get a chance to kind of submit the most out there opinion, maybe hoping that our hot take leads to some actual truth. And for me, that truth time is right now. Friends, I am excited to bring to you my tasty bar top takes for Theros Beyond Death. And here's the cool thing. If I get this stuff wrong, it's okay. I'm at the bar in the Unlucky Lounge. Not a big deal. But if I actually get some stuff right, I look like that much more of a savant. So the fact that I've got a two-for-one in play, well, let's get straight to it. But tradition needs to hold true. So wherever you have stopped planeswalking, take a second, crack open a cold one, let's all start this little hot take time with a tradition known as the untapped step. Ah, now, that tastes enchanting. Well, pardon the Theros parlance, but let's go ahead and get to these top takes in no particular order here comes take number one. Don't sleep on the combination of red and white. Now historically in the past, the original Theros block, the red-white deck was strongly aggressive and led to what people call battle cruiser magic. That's where something kind of starts and snowballs and gets out of hand. Back in the day, you'd have your heroic cards that cast alongside the uh, order enchantment auras. This got to be outrageously strong. And I think it won't be as crazy in this iteration of Theros. However, I think that there's a lot of strength in red-white in more than one way. First off, you have a traditional curve out and beat your opponent with a strong two, three, four, few combat tricks and call it a day. This includes playing a three, one for two that can't block and can also escape from the graveyard. We also have a couple really strong support aura cards, like Escape Velocity. It's a haste enchantment that can escape from your graveyard for a very low cost of two cards. Additionally, you also have the Flash Speed Holy Strength. These play nicely when we're trying to make a good strong creature to continue to attack with. Now, I think all of these things play quite well, but there's another type of red-white deck as well that deserves consideration, and this is the red-white go-wide deck. We've seen a number of really strong spells that can create 1-1 tokens. In addition, we're seeing some semi-pseudo-heroic mechanic here that also pumps up the power of your team. So if you're making all these tokens and making them, even if they can't block like some of the satyrs that we've already seen, 
just making them into two ones and tapping sideways while your opponent's trying to dirtle around with maybe trying to build up a devotion or draw some cards, you can catch them with their pants down early and win the game. But I do think, since we have more than one different type of red-white deck, the cards are going to go into each of them deserves additional consideration. I don't think that some things you play in that curved deck are going to fit well into the red-white go-wide deck. Regardless of how these cards might go into specific decks, I think that this set really sets itself up well to be naturally paid off, be it with some of those auras in natural devotion payoffs, or in trying to create a lot of spells to make the one ones and then giving you an opportunity to escape from the yard. I will say this is a color combination I look forward to drafting, drafting more than once, and figuring out the nuances between the two different decks. Let's go ahead and now move on to my second tasty take for Theros Beyond Death. Is it possible that White Black might actually have a shade of a reanimator strategy? At this point at recording, which is January 7th, we have now seen not just one, but two uncommon cards that has the potential to bring creatures back from the graveyard. The first one is the uncommon black-white spell that returns back a creature, and then also can return back an aura. Seems pretty strong to recover any lost resources that you might be using while casting your auras and potentially getting both killed in the process. Good news is the auras seem to be built in with some nice natural advantage that you don't have to worry too much about the loss of card advantage. But there's another card that's worth noting. It's called Archon of Falling Stars. Four white white, total cost of six. It's a 4-4 flyer that says, when this creature dies, you may return target enchantment card from your graveyard to the battlefield. This might be an additional little extra touch to push this black-white deck over the edge because we already know that some of the strongest utility creatures in this limited environment are going to be enchantment creatures. If you have two things above five that can bring back that value, it's going to be pretty hard for some of the other decks to try and catch up. But when it comes to reanimation, white-black is also not lacking on the escape strong cards. For example, Freka Spawn, three and a black for a three four that has an escape of five colorless and a black. It also says exile three other cards from your graveyard to cast it. It says when it escapes, you put two additional counters onto it. This makes it a pretty cool five six. And on top of that, when this card escapes, each opponent sacrifices a non-Gorgon creature. So you're telling me that I get an early 3, 4 for 4, a pretty solid curved card, and then later on I get a 5, 6 that edicts them, this is going to be a payoff. And on top of that, we already know there's some black enabling for self-mill. For example, right now the card that has my heart is Mire Triton. One in a black, it's a 2-1 with death touch, and when it enters the battlefield, you put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard and then gain two life. This card is everything, everything I love about limited. Self-mill, control, life gain to mitigate any early aggression from your opponent. I'm just saying, black-white 
might actually be a standard base reanimator strategy. And if you are a fan of Cube at all, you know that reanimating things off of their costs and making them cheaper, well, that's just smooth as peanut butter on a jelly sandwich in the middle of a hungry afternoon snack. I don't know if I like that analogy. Especially if any of you have allergies out there, like I do, I sincerely apologize for the last 15 seconds. Let's swiftly move on to tasty take number three. Monobases in this format are going to look very different depending on the kind of deck that you draft. Now, I think there's going to be some pretty traditional 9-8 monobases, but I think also we're going to see some 10-7 or 11-6 monobases as well. You see, with the presence of Devotion, you need to make sure that you can curve out some of these cards that have double pips in their mana cost. It is only an advantage to you, so when you curve out into your Devotion payoffs, it's a nice, easy way of accruing as much of that value off of your Devotion cost. Now, the best example of this is, of course, the classic Gary, Grey Merchant of Asphodel. He is a 2-4 for 3 and black-black. When he enters the battlefield, you drain each opponent for your devotion to black. Now, this back in the day, it was a common. This now is going to be an uncommon card. If you ask me, that's all for the best. Because it got really egregious when your opponent was playing three or four Garys and it returned to the underworld and your life literally was just hanging by a thread like the fates from Hercules. So thankfully, this card got shifted up in rarity. All this is to say that you need to take a particular look at the kind of decks that you're drafting and make sure we're not just falling back into the 9-8 mana base. Being able to heavily lean into a color is going to be to your advantage. It might feel very similar to Eldraine, but here in Theros, we really want to think about those costs curving into your payoffs and making sure they hit in the most appropriate times. Also, I have a feeling that if you can curve any of the demigods onto exactly the turn you're supposed to, that's gonna lead to the really busted devotion payoffs. So make sure you're building your deck and drafting cards to accommodate for your best case scenario in creating your devotion decks. Let's go to tasty take number four. Number four deals with two words and one very exciting card to me, Furious Rise. It's two colorless and a red. It's an enchantment that reads at the beginning of your end step, if you control a creature with a power of four or greater, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card until you exile another card with Furious Rise. I saw this card. I saw the mana cost, two and a red, and my squee instinct went wee. That mana cost is every single red build around I've ever loved to play. Furnace Celebration, Burning Vengeance to name two of them. This feels kind of like the red card advantage that you are looking for to put together some pretty furious builds. This card also seems to suit quite well into the combination 
of red and green. If only to speak onto that red and green build around uncommon, the 4-4 that says it can't attack unless you control another creature with a power of 4 or greater. Clearly there's some kind of power 4 or greater sub-theme in the color combination of red and green. But Furious Rise also might go well into a blue-red strategy. That's to speak on the Brine Giant. It's six colorless and a blue. It's a 5-6 that reads the spell costs one less to cast for each enchantment that you control. This, friends, is that example of a Mondo combo. One is an enchantment, the other costs less because you control the enchantment, and then because you have the creature, you get to exile a card off it and create your very own card advantage package. I cannot wait to see how Furious Rise plays into the format as a whole. That's not to speak either on the fact that you're probably going to be enhancing your creatures with auras, maybe a few spells or two, which is going to make Furious Rise an even stronger build around. Let's move to tasty take number five. I mentioned it before, but I'm going to say it again. Self-mill is back, baby. I adore when you self-mill yourself to fuel advantage into your future game plans. And I've already mentioned one of those cards, the Meyer Triton. But there's another one that I'm somewhat particularly excited to see how it plays off. It's a little card known as Towering Wave Mystic. It's one in a blue. It's a 2-1. Whenever it deals damage... Just damage, not to a player. Target player puts that many cards from the top of their library into their graveyard. It's a piker that's going to self-mill you, depending on how much damage it does. Already, it's guaranteed more than likely to mill off at least two cards. If your opponent is dirtling or maybe trying to set up a board state, you could pretty perceivably mill a good four, six, maybe even eight cards if we're lucky, that's really going to fuel our future escape costs. But let's say green-blue comes into play. You pump up that towering wave mystic, and all of a sudden you're putting half of your deck into your graveyard and escaping for a whole bunch of cards. Adore. Love. Am crying just thinking about this whole interaction, folks. But one might ask, how deep will this self-mill strategy go? I certainly think it's going to be for particular colors, but what about those particular colors? How much will you actually be putting your library into your graveyard? Well, if I look historically at past limited environments, I look at it at a sliding scale between two sets. On one side, you've got the classic Innistrad set, the one I've talked about before. In that set, you were degenerately putting half of your library into your graveyard, getting all those flashback spells, fueling your spider spawning, and just feel like you're playing an entirely different game than your opponent. On the other side is another extremely strong limited environment, Cons of Tarkir with the Delve mechanic. That one had less self-mill, but kind of naturally fueled your graveyard and allowed you to kind of cast a few spells on discount with the delve mechanic. So where does Theros Beyond Death lie? Well, I don't feel a sense of either of those sets overwhelmingly articulating what Theros is going to be doing, but if I had to put it anywhere, 
I'd put it a little bit more towards the Khans of Tarkir side for now, with the potential of moving it more up towards that degenerate self-mill that Innistrad brings us. But the idea of self-mill and the escape mechanic brings us to Tasty Take number six. Escape has a real cost. Now, I don't just mean the amount of mana that you have to pay into it, but I think that the number of cards you have to exile to escape these spells out of your yard is not a negligible amount. When you're building your deck up, you should first figure out how many cards you can put into the graveyard. Can you do it somewhat reliably? If the answer is yes, that's going to increase the number of escape spells you can reliably cast throughout the game. But I think you need to temper the escape cost with the total number of cards left in your graveyard and in your deck that you could potentially escape, and know which of those escape cards are going to be the strongest to play against your opponent. Throughout the course of a game, you may only get to cast two or four escape cards any given match, so you need to be wary about what you use your graveyard as a resource for. Let me give you an example of one of these cards. There's a little spell known as Glimpse of Freedom, one in a blue instant draw card. It has escape for two in a blue, exile five other cards from your graveyard. So if I have to use the resource of five cards from my graveyard to draw another card, well, I'm kind of thinking that I might only use this in one of those final standstill scenarios where I'm trying to edge that last bit of value away from your opponent. This card seems pretty reasonably playable, but I don't know if I want to use the resource of five other cards in my graveyard to draw just one additional card. I'll probably have one or two other escape spells I feel might have more value to escape with. Let's wrap this up with my final tasty bar top take, number seven. While drafting, you're going to have to keep track of new types of resources that you may have never had to keep track of before. Ways to put cards in the graveyard and mana pips in the cost of your cards. Now, first let's talk about the ladder and devotion. Now, when it comes to the demigods with their devotion effects, I'm willing to bet that they are generally good without any support. But some other cards with devotion, I think they may need a little additional help, which can come from you in the way that you draft your deck. Take, for example, a card known as Reverend Hoplite. It's four colorless and a white. It's a creature, human soldier. It's a 1-2. When it enters the battlefield, you create a number of 1-1 one, one white human soldier creature tokens equal to your devotion to white. Now, obviously, a 1-2 for 5, way below the curve when it comes to the vanilla test. Hashtag limited resources. Thank you for all of your terminology. The more important question now is how much do you need to devotion for in order to make this card good? For this particular card, I think you want the devotion to be between 4 and 5. Now, it's reasonable to get, but in order to really get this on curve and make that red-white go-wide strategy that we talked about really flow, you're going to need to really devote yourself to making sure you have a curve that can support the white pips and its costs to get you into making Revenant Hoplite a pretty strong curve consideration. If you have no consideration for this card, then it feels like garbage. It's not a playable card, and you need to keep it in your sideboard. This is all to say, though, you should know that not every deck is going to be a devotion deck. 
While devotion is seen across all of the colors, and you can certainly play to it, I don't think every deck that you need to draft needs to have devotion as a necessary consideration. Maybe you're just going for value town. Maybe you're going for the aura theme and you want to play multiple auras over two, three colors. Which I don't know if that's going to be quite good. We haven't seen that much fixing, but I'm sure maybe we might see a piece or two coming in the future. That's all just to say, don't necessarily think you're always drafting devotion and that you need to find cards to support devotion. In that same vein, escape works the same way with some of your escape uncommon payoffs. Let me give you an example of this one. In green, you've got a spicy uncommon known as Chainweb Arcaneer. I think that's how you say it? Couldn't tell you. It's a single green creature spider. It's a 1-2 with reach, and when it enters the battlefield, it deals damage equal to its power to target creature with flying and opponent controls. Then it has escape. For three green green and exile four other cards from your graveyard, it escapes, gets you three counters onto it, and then you get that flying shoot down effect one more time. If you can reliably escape this card on turn five, find a way to self mill. This is a four five for five, and maybe just gets you a little extra. <coughs> Um, sorry everyone. Excuse me. <laughs> Listen, sorry Borak, it just kind of slipped. No, I wasn't raised in a barn. I just got really excited about the new scent. Anyway, the point I was trying to make is that when it comes to the devotion or the escape cards, you're going to have to pay attention to how much you can fuel into making those cards really, really strong. Take, for example, the Revelant Hoplite, or even Grey Merchant of Asphodel. Consider how much you can reliably make their devotions for, and then figure out if that card is good enough for you. It's gonna be okay to leave them in the board. You may not play every escape spell either, but just know that in the end, you're gonna have fun, because this set looks really sweet. If I could sum this set up in a singular statement, I would say... It's a value-orientated set, but the value is going to be most accrued from having a strong battlefield. It's kind of like the best of two worlds in one. Wait, what's that? I brought back the two for one? It's a callback, folks. I kind of feel like I gave myself a very easy underhanded pitch, and I swung it out of the park for an easy home run. And the crowd goes wild. <sighs> Friends, I don't even know why I made the whole crowd cheering sound effect with my voice when I can just add it in post afterwards. I don't know, I guess you could call me an irreverent hoplite. Yes, Borok, I thought that was a good one too. Anyway, that's going to bring us to the end of this podcast. But first, a few bits of housekeeping. Once more, we're brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. You can also check us out at Twitter under Draft and Draft Corey. We want to know what you think about these takes. 
Are they making some sense, or am I just full of hot air? And of course, you can find us on our Patreon at Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. Well, I don't know about you, but I found the end of my bottle, and so we've reached the end of our episode. So until next time, go and brew up some memories of your own. My name is Corey, and thanks for listening to Draft and Draft. We'll see you all again next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.